Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Want big savings on best-in-class supplements? From November 21st to 28th, you can save 25% on all of Bioptimizer's products. No restrictions and no limits. This is their biggest sale of the year, and it won't happen again until 2023, which means right now is the best time to stock up on Magnesium Breakthrough, P3OM Probiotics, Masszymes, and more. Just go to www.bioptimizers.com slash podcast10 and enter podcast10 for 25% off any order during 2022 Black Friday, November 21st through 28th. This holiday season, the best deal in wireless can only be found at Mint Mobile. Right now, when you switch to Mint Mobile and buy any three-month plan, you'll get another three months for free. As the first company to sell premium wireless service online only, Mint Mobile lets you order and activate from home with eSIM. While saving tons on phone plans starting at just 15 bucks a month. For a limited time, buy any three-month Mint Mobile plan and get three more months free by going to mintmobile.com slash save. That's mintmobile.com slash save. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash save. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. At the time of the recording of this interview, the Jeremy Days are in the German charts with their sixth album, Beauty and Broken, 27 years after their last, and 33 years after their first eponymous album. Now, usually when anyone interviews the Jeremy Days, they want to talk to Dirk Darmstetter, who is the singer of the band and a great guy. But I've chosen to interview Louis Oberlander because his story is a little different to the others and one that I've followed with interest on social media over the years and one that personally fascinated me. Louis lives in Los Angeles, the city of sun, success and broken dreams. This is the story of a dream eventually fulfilled. So Louis Oberlander, this is fascinating because... We have sort of known each other over a period since about 1989, when I interviewed the Jeremy Days in the TV Tower. Have I got that right? The TV Tower in Hamburg, when it used to revolve. Amazing. Amazing. Yes. You, your memory is insane. And it is true. Yes. The and famous course- TV Tower. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay, uh, the reason that I wanted to interview you, I know people often interview Dirk when it comes to the Jeremy Days, but I wanted to interview you because I think your life is a fascinating journey of different choices along Mm -hmm. the way that 
has always interested me and I've always sort of followed you on Facebook and we've had contact over the years. Um, right. And I find your story really interesting. So I'm going to do the whole story and I want to go back. Um, you were born in Sofia in Bulgaria and mm -hmm. your mother came to Hamburg when you were five. What sort of life, I mean, I'm sure you've talked to your mother uh, about it at some point in, in your life. What sort of life did she have in Bulgaria? and Why did she make that choice? Um, <clears throat> wow, that's a really good question. Uh, well, I think it's hard for a lot of people to imagine what it could be like to grow up in a communist country. Uh, very, I mean, we of course know that through media and everything, oh, Russia is bad. And you know, Bulgaria was part of the Eastern Bloc. And therefore you had, it had a lot of advantages in some way, but also a lot of disadvantages. And the disadvantages were a kind of like oppression, um, you know, a shortage of actual goods. I remember being four years old and my grandmother would always take me to the market and we would wait in line for some produce or bread. And you would wait for two, three hours. And by the end of those two, three hours, you might end up there and not getting anything because everything was gone and you'd walk home having spent four hours waiting. My grandmother was very smart. You know, she, know how, she knew how to handle a kid. And usually when that would happen, we would go to the, uh, to the what's that called? To the fairground around the corner. So I was like, all right, whatever, no bread, but you know, we're gonna go on a merry-go-round. So <clears throat> um, yeah, but I think, I think for my mother, it was the idea of <clears throat> what the what would the future look like for herself and for me as a kid, you know, growing up. And um, and then there's also that other element where simply she fell in love with my father, with my stepfather, you know, who was from Hamburg, and therefore, um, you know, they made that move. Um, and I arrived in Hamburg and it was a very, very strange time for me because I was, you know, I didn't speak any German in the beginning, of course. And, um, and the weather was just shit. I mean, that's, that's been sort of like a red thread. I know it's too banal almost, but um, the weather in Hamburg is a thing of its own. Um, but I was very lonely as a kid. I, I felt like I didn't belong. I think I was faced with some sort of, you know, uprooting of sorts. My grandmother who raised me for two years, uh, stayed in Sofia. Um, I missed her a lot. Yeah, so. Okay, I want to come to that in a second, but you, you mentioned there were disadvantages and advantages about living in a communist country. What, what were the advantages then? I think, you know, a lot of people from Eastern Germany probably have, you know, the former um, Eastern Germany, they have voiced that as well, that you kind of have been looked after in some way. So there's, you know, institutional, uh, you know, kindergartens, there's work, <laughs> you know, you know, you can't afford the luxury of capitalism. You can't get a new iWatch or, you know, or any of those devices, but the bare basics are kind of covered. I know, I mean, it's, this is probably a too long of a conversation, whether it's really all shiny and, and wonderful, but there has been a, some sort of nostalgia about people from the East going like, wow, man, the, the West is a rat race of sorts, and I'm not sure I'm cut out for that. And then they start harking back to the good old days and whatever times, you know. Um, 
I say I'd say this those are the event I think you know I, I revisited Bulgaria I went to Bulgaria I keep going to Bulgaria up until it was like 12 13 years old and then I, there was a long break and I revisited at the end of my 20s now I was very worried you know meeting my family you know coming from the west that that kid from the west and I was expecting poverty and you know and, and awkwardness and I realized that Bulgaria in particular was a very rich country. And by that, I mean, you didn't feel that former communist, you know, bleh, horribleness of sorts. It's a very a culturally rich country because when there is no money and people experience that, I guess, all over the world, when they go to poor countries, they envision, they see, uh, uh, a lot of spirits, like high spirits of sorts, because there's music, there's love, there's family, which are all values that we all know they are free. They don't cost anything. And people engage in that and, and you know, make that a thing in, in lieu of, you know, items, things, stuff. How did your birth father react to you being taken to another country. I presume your birth father was alive and he stayed in Bulgaria. So yeah. what, was, what was the relationship with him uh, because of this? He is still alive and um, you know, he remarried, got another kid, my half sister. And um, you know, it's funny, uh, I never really wondered and I actually never asked him. All I knew was that um, he was okay. He thought I was in good hands. He knew my stepfather was a very loving and wonderful man. Um, he respected my mom's choice. And I think he just went on living his life. It was very, uh, I think, unemotional and um, non-problematic. Also the way I look at it, I, I, know, I know a lot of people, you know, who have grappled with, you know, divorced parents and, you know, not being connected with their parents. I don't have a, a very close connection with my real father, um, but on visiting him again at the end of my 20s, um, it's funny because I don't speak Bulgarian anymore. So, I mean, I understand it. I know the phonetics. I can read the Cyrillic alphabet and all of that, but I don't speak it fluently. So there was my half-sister who kind of had to translate from Spanish-English that we would sort of talk to Bulgarian but you know you you meet your parent and you just hug and there's warmth and there was a wonderful scene at the dinner table at some point when we were all you know they they serve little items and um and then I grabbed the onions and I eat them like raw onions and then he just said like look he's my son he eats raw onions <laughs> that's the sign of a man in bulgaria it's, it's fantastic <laughs> the, um, when you went to hamburg you mentioned that you were the other in a way um and the outsider i would sort of express it as well how did that represent itself and how did that make you feel uh, well I would say, I mean, the, the funny thing is like, how does it make you feel is, is a two-sided question because it's how did it make me feel in that moment? What, I, what do I remember from the actual feeling and how do I analyze it now? So that's, that's always kind of tricky to, to make that distinction. But I would say 
at that point, being the outsider, I had a really funny name, a strange name to a lot of Germans. It's Krasimir Bakalov. Krasimir. No one can pronounce that name in German. It's like, what the fuck? I don't know. This is like weird. So that was, you know, something number one that didn't pan out. <clears throat> and then the games that we, I would play in the courtyard with the other guys and the other kids were really strange. They were like grabbing each other's balls. That was a game. <laughs> and I was like, ah, this is weird. <laughs> you know, of course, of course, you know, amongst other things like playing soccer and stuff like that. But, <clears throat> you know, I, I think, I don't know, there was this sense of not belonging or not knowing. And it wasn't, I wasn't like aspirational. I'm gonna make my mark. I'm gonna be the leader of the gang or something. I was more like a quiet one. I was very well behaved. I was, you know, non-confrontational. I was a quiet kid, you know, and therefore, of course, you know, there was a clear escape. And the first escape was reading, uh, language, you know, stuff like that. I learned German, I learned to read. Um, and I started going into books books and then age six I started playing the piano because it was an amazing instrument and it made me feel happy somehow. What what music did your parents and I obviously mean your stepfather in this your mother and stepfather what what music did they listen to and when did your taste start to diverge? Huh um I remember long trips in the car to Bulgaria. We would travel for two to three days um, and they would pretty much play, you know, top 20 cassettes. The songs that I remember like distinctively were uh, David Bowie, the man who sold the world that, I don't know, it was that guitar line and the harmonic movement from a to that one it always made me feel some way and then um songs by neil diamond and you know just it was pretty much pretty much mainstream pop that we would listen to they didn't have a distinctive you know oh this is what we love um I remember, though, that one of my first concerts that my parents, that my mom actually took me to, and that was my first concert, like, as a concert goer, uh, was the Rhythmics. And I thought it was super tacky because they didn't have the good stuff yet. They only had had Love is a Stranger. That was the first single, I think, or the, like the first major single they had. And I thought it was like, it sat on the, on, the, on the brink of Schlager somehow, German Schlager. And I was like, oh, mom, do we really have to go? This is so awkward, da, da, da. Little did I know how advanced my mom was because <clears throat> of course, Eurythmics turned out to be, you know, a major force in the eighties. And I did love, you know, a lot of their songs and I did absolutely adore Annie Lennox. Um, but my, my own musical taste, it pretty much start, started to diverge from my parents' mainstream taste, I think, with Prince um, and um, Todd Rundgren, and of course, a major force were the Beach Boys. Because I had a, a notebook, a, a song, sorry, a, a sheet book that had pet sounds for piano. 
And it was funny because I was playing classical music, Bach, Mozart, et cetera, et cetera. And I would play the Beach Boys and I realized there was a semblance of sorts in chord progression and melody creation. And my God, I mean, you know, the Beach Boys, I think ultimately opened up a huge universe for me and on, in many ways, one of them, of course, the idea of the Californian dream, you know, or yeah, basically just sunshine, good times, uh, a, a life that is on the polar opposite of life in Hamburg, which I at that point did not like too much, right? And the other part, of course, was Brian Wilson's genius, who was, you know, that I remember listening to that song and I was probably around 10 years old. Uh, I guess I just wasn't made for these times by the Beach Boys. It's a beautiful, slow song, very moody, very, you know, emotional. And I did not know what the words meant because I didn't speak English then. I knew exactly what he said. And, you know, later on, once I, of course, spoke English and I was like, oh, my God, I really guess I just wasn't made for these times. There's so many things that I'm not decor with uh, at 10 or 12 years old. And, you know, that's kind of been an ongoing thing with my life. We'll probably get to that later on. But there is definitely an element, <clears throat> an escapist element that music delivered for me. Um, and also an explorational nerdiness. I mean, you mentioned that, um, you mentioned sort of that music was an escape. You mentioned the man who uh, sold the world, Bowie. Bowie for me represented the other, the outsider, the alien. And he, for me as a teenager, was a way out of my life that I sort of hated as a teenager. That might be unfair. To, to, to my mother at that time but it was a sort of way outside of my life I wanted to get the hell out and Bowie represented what my aspiration of, of the society that he seemed to be in and what he represented was where I wanted to go it's funny that you say the Beach Boys and the representation of what they are and where you are now which is obviously LA California um, and they must have expressed that as well but Brian Wilson was also a perfectionist could you understand the perfection in his music back then, or is that something that you would grasp later? I think perfection or, or the, the, yeah, perfection in music or in arts, um, they happen, it's nothing you can understand, I think. Because ultimately I think that music is one of the last magical resorts that we have in our lives. It's that thing, the inexplicable. It does something to you and you cannot know why. I mean, scientists have tried, you know, to <clears throat> dissemble, you know, what, what makes a perfect song. Is there a, they're not getting anywhere. You can't know because it is, you know, the sum of all things, as you mentioned. I mean, you know, you attached so many things to David Bowie um, you know, I attach so many things to Prince and, and, and the Beach Boys. And therefore, it's not just the music, but if the music creates this magical space, you are willing to go there and it helps you to go there. Were you already Louis Oberlander in school? Uh, no, I was um, 
first Krasimir, then Christian, and then later on became Louis Overlander, Louis Christian Overlander. The reason I ask that is that I've uh, had about six therapists in my life. <laughs> and one of them I talked to, my real name is Stephen James. And my, you know, name that I had to choose, I didn't have to choose that name, but because I wanted to join a union and there was already someone called uh, Stephen James, I had to change it. So uh, I chose Steve Blame. And my therapist said to me once that you adopt another personality with a change of name. How was that for you? Looking back, I mean, obviously, as a child, you wouldn't have understood that. But looking back, were you able to adopt another personality because you could then fit in? Yes, definitely. I mean, I remember that switch from the Bulgarian name to the German name to Christian was definitely a big step because all of a sudden it wasn't awkward. You know, I wasn't kind of like traceable as an as an clearly ethnic person <clears throat> that I do remember. I don't remember it having like a huge impact, though. I didn't feel like, oh, my God, I'm a new person. That was definitely not the, the case. I think the definition of you know, becoming a new person to yourself happens with your changing your environment more than the name, I think. I mean, for me, at least it was. Changing the environment, living in the UK or living in New York or living here abroad and on the West Coast, those are things that change my personality. Changes of culture, not so much the name. It was, it was a little bit of a thing, but um, not too much. Want big savings on best-in-class supplements? From November 21st to 28th, you can save 25% on all of Bioptimizer's products. No restrictions and no limits. This is their biggest sale of the year, and it won't happen again until 2023, which means right now is the best time to stock up on Magnesium Breakthrough, P3OM Probiotics, Masszymes, and more. Just go to www.bioptimizers.com slash podcast10 and enter podcast10 for 25% off any order during 2022 Black Friday, November 21st through 28th. Hey, y'all. I'm Kiki Palmer. I'm an actress, a singer, an entrepreneur, and a Virgo, just to name a few. I'm proud to introduce you to the Baby This Is Kiki Palmer podcast, exclusively on Amazon Music. I'm putting my friends, family, and some of the dopest experts in the hot seat to ask them the questions that have been burning in my mind. What happened to sitcoms? It's OnlyFans, only that. I want to know, so I asked my mom about it. On Baby This Is Kiki Palmer, no topic is off limits. Listen to Baby This Is Kiki Palmer, exclusively on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app now. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. So when did you actually start your first ever band? That was age 11 with my friend Stefan von Bagen. And um, we were very much into the reggae ska movement, the two-tone movement, you know, UB40 when they were actually really, really cool. I mean, it's, it's hard for a lot of people, you know, when they know Red Red Wine and stuff like that that the first album, you know, 11 kids meeting at the unemployment office and, you know, from all sorts of cultures and deciding to learn instruments and make music, socially charged music. I mean, socially politically charged music, you know, about Maggie Thatcher and whoever. Um, that stuff, we were so much into it. Madame, Madame Medusa, Tyler, amazing song still to this day. I just listened to it the other day and I'm like, oh my God, this is so good. 
you know, anything from UB40, The Beat, um, Selecta, um, you know, of course, Madness, blah, blah, blah. But um, yeah, but age 11 and the police were great. You know, they were also, oh my God, amazing stuff. So yeah, that was my first band. And we actually got a first show, uh, a first concert uh, in front of 1400 people in a place called Die Rampe in Großneumarkt in Hamburg. And, um, and it was, uh, well, it was a Christian, uh, what do you call this, like one day Christian day of sorts. So Hamburg is flooded with tourists and that's why it was sold out, not because we played there. <laughs> But you know, we had we had an African American singer, and it was it was kind of like a novelty thing as well, because there were like three 11 to 13 year old kids on stage with one 18 year old, and we were playing hardcore reggae ska. I mean, for real. And so I wish, you know, I wish we had iPhones back then just for for you know witnessing that and re-watching that. So that was my first band. We were called The Producers. Uh, our first name for the band was called, we called ourselves The Gallant Gadfly. I don't know why. It's, man, bands and their names. It's ridiculous. I remember when, when U2 came out and uh, we were like, that's a stupid name. Because in Hamburg, there's a subway that's called U2. Eh. You know, you can't, couldn't connect the dots there. What did you actually glean from being in that band that has stayed with you throughout your life? Is there anything, because the first band, the first opportunity to go on stage, playing with other people, that sort of, you know, idea. And, and I think there is also something that you do take from every experience. And I just wonder, although you were so young, what you took from that experience, which has been useful in other periods in your life. Well, I would, I would agree 100%. Um, I think a band is a very special uh, combination. It's like, it's, it's, got, it's, it's got the intimacy of a family. It's a surrogate family. Uh, yet the influences, they go outside of the realm of what a normal family usually delivers. So you have people from all walks of life. They come together for a greater good. And you have the fights and you have the agreements and you have the camaraderie. You have, you learn to compromise, uh, which is a very hard thing to do, especially when it comes to something like taste. You know, if, if you feel so strongly about it and you go, oh, I don't like this. But then you find ways by adding your input uh, musically, um, you know, to that and molding it into something else and it becomes something else and becomes yours. That's, I think, a very important element. I think the social element within a band um, is something that I've definitely taken with me throughout my whole life, learning how to be with people. You know, it doesn't matter whether it's a band, whether it's a work environment of sorts. You know, over here, I started getting more into the entertainment industry, into film and stuff. It's all the same. It's always the same mechanisms. And to learn that at a very young age, I mean, preteen or teenager, who gets the chance, if you're not in music, to learn that? Maybe people in sports. <clears throat> That's the other option there, I think. 
But generally, if you just go to school and it's like, mm, it's, it's a very one-sided scenario, the teacher, the pupil on the other end and ball, that's it. Yeah. What do you remember about the first contact with Dirk Darmstädter and Christoph Kaiser? Um, well, I, I, I signed a um, publishing contract as, as a songwriter with a um, company from Germany, with a publishing company in Germany. And um, one of the guys, Michael Kama, who used to be um, the head of that, he um, suggested, hey, I have this American singer. He's an artist with us. I think you guys should meet. You know, he's trying to put together a band. You should, guys should meet. So we met. <clears throat> I will be honest, I don't actually recall the very first meeting with Dirk and then later on Christoph, but what I do distinctively remember is our mission that we set ourselves on to craft the perfect pop song. So we were three people at that point. We felt we were a band <clears throat> and we would get, you know, drum machines and uh, four track recorders and just start programming and recording and overdubbing and crafting songs with you know intro verse bridge middle eight chorus and so on and so on um I, I i remember that he sounded weird to me dirk did because he had a very strong american accent in german and he would get things wrong. And it was like, it felt a little bit like a put on, like, you know, like, like, but I realized, no, he's just that. He's just that. I think he had just come back from the States and yeah. But he is, is German, isn't he? He went to America yeah. for a few years and that sort of adopted the accent. So when he came back, people thought he was <laughs> uh, American. Um, what was different musically between uh, the real McCoys which was the first incarnation, as it were, of the Jeremy days, and uh, your own band, uh, the producers. What was different for you musically? Where did that, how had that progressed? Well, there was definitely much more of a, <clears throat> how do I word this? It's, it was more a, a very focused approach to the craft of songwriting with uh, you know my first band, the producers. I mean, we were kids and we just put three to five chords together. Oh, this is fun. Oh my God, this sounds like music. And that was the joy of it, right? And then just hanging out. With Dirk and Christoph, it was more like we would meet on weekends or you know end of the day and just sit down and be like, all right, we're gonna write a song now that is one of the best songs in the world <laughs> and you know and 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 with that there was a different approach somehow um how do i yeah it was just more focused very I mean, there focused was, there was a point where the real mccoys expanded as it were into the jeremy days with um jorn christoph heilbutt and stefan lager so what was the reason for that, why did you as a trio feel that you need to expand to have five people in, in the band? Well, I'll, I'll give you a visual. Um, as we were, while we were still three, just the three of us, we had a rehearsal room in Altona in Hamburg and um, we had put the drum machine, the Yamaha RX-19 on the back on a little riser 
and we put spotlights on each of us <laughs> that were there, including the drum machine. <laughs> and uh, it just didn't cut it, man. A drum machine, and we we did like pop music and rock music, so it the drum machine just didn't cut it. So Chris Suffer, Chris, um, he he had an old buddy in Munich, Stefan Raga, who was an excellent drummer. He was kind of like a, a prodigy, a wunderkind of, of drumming and um, asked him whether he would come up. And I knew Jörn, uh, the guitarist, who was also a spectacular guitarist. And um, we just expanded. We always knew we wanted to be a real band. And three people, you know, I played keyboards, Chris up bass, Dirk sang and played guitar. So that was not a band. We could have played, a, we could have been a folk trio, but not a real band. So we always knew we needed to be more than just the three of us. And then, and then came actually a phase that was really interesting because that's what a lot of people don't understand. You know, when you have your first success, they're like, you know, oh, your overnight success, da da da. Well, you know that saying, give me 10 years and I'll give you overnight success. Because <clears throat> while, as we were writing songs, there was a time of roughly, I think, one and a half to two years where we would just be an ice cold bunker rehearsal rooms in Hamburg, practicing, rehearsing, just playing the songs over and over again, figuring shit out, composing, all of that. That's a mighty long time. Two years of that, where you just do that, wow. I mean, looking back, you know, I mean, nowadays, or especially here in the US where, where songwriting is a craft, it's, it's a job. You have songwriting sessions, you meet for four hours and then you churn out four songs and that's it. And forming a band takes a week and you know your first gig should be in four weeks. It's, it's all so compressed and so, so different to how we approached it back then. The, um, I think what's interesting is that the area of uh, record companies at that time was um, very much um, about putting in a lot of money to bands that they really believed in. And there was a high investment into you as a band. How did that make you feel at that time? And what did you feel was coming? I think I'll be really honest with you. We had no idea that that's how the business worked. <laughs> you know, we thought when we signed the record deal and, and, you know, when we saw, you know, the cities plastered with our posters, um, we thought, yeah, duh, of course. They, they put them up there because we are so good. Um, and, you know, it was mistaken. Our, our attitude at that point was mistaken <clears throat> for arrogance when in reality it was pure naivete. It, it was just, we were like, well, we've been working so hard and we've been mastering actually the songwriting. So of course people will want to sell that. There was really, to, we, we did not understand the industry, I think for the first five years and we didn't care about it. I mean, that's the other element. We were like, well, who cares? People, we had managers, Alexander von Oswald was our manager. We had a record company, Tim Renner was, you know, the A&R. So we didn't have any, we pulled, we stayed away from that stuff. So the, the, the fact that, of course, now, you know, yeah, if, if people are pushing artists, particular artists with a lot of money, 
And I can only imagine the pressure that it can create for someone who's fully aware of it. Ultimately though, I think that artists tend to stay away from that thought. Yeah, okay, you can say that they stay away from it, but they, you went to London and you work with, you know, two of the biggest producer, producers at that time, Clive Langer and Alan with Stanley, who had worked with Elvis Costello, um, who had worked with Bowie and Jagger and Lloyd Cole. Um, so that must have given you a sort of feeling like, oh God, we're, you know, this is, this is big. This is something really big. You know, no, it's, I mean, of course, it was big, we were excited, it was more like a, a field trip of sorts, you know, we put all our stuff on the whatever it was, Queen Mary, you know, and in, in a truck and traveled over there and lived in, in Notting Hill. Um, but the thing is, when once we were in the studio, of of course, we knew who those people were, because we chose them, right, we wanted to work with them but not so much for the status, but the people they had worked with and for the first time feeling that we are on a playing field that is ours. Not saying that we are as experienced or as good as Clive and Alan at that point, but you, know, you want to rise to the occasion. You want to work with people who are exceptional. And that was a time because Germany at that point, mm, Musically, it was not our playing field. We had nothing to do in Germany. We came out of the Neue Deutsche Welle, which is new German wave, which was which ended up being a, a cacophony, cacophony, um, cacophony, cacophony of of silly children's songs to fast, you know, new wave beats, and it was horrible. And modern talking was there, and so. There wasn't much in Germany that where we felt at home at, and neither were there any producers that we admired. Hence, we looked, you know, towards the US and the UK. So being with Clive and Alan at that point and having the first experiences with them in the studio, we're like, yeah, this is they work like like we used to craft our songs at home on the four track. So that was there was a huge relief. Because there was, of course, respect on one hand, you know, they've worked with everyone. I mean, we had Louis Jardim on our first album. He played the bass on Grace Jones' Slave to the Rhythm. And he played congas on our album. Um, you know, he was sitting there with his fat cigar. And, and, and when he said that, that he played the bass on Slave to the Rhythm, we were just floored. I mean, being part of pop history, music history in any way, shape or form is one of the most inspiring things as a musician, I think, apart from writing songs or performing. I think that's your collective, the collective of pop music, everything. That's why I don't say I hate this or I hate this or this, this type of music. It's more like, well, we're all pursuing the same things just with with different means and different tools and different approaches and in part two lewis talks about the success with the jeremy days and the period that it went wrong the band members went their own way and lewis made another momentous decision in his life see you then <laughs> Thank you. 
Want big savings on best-in-class supplements? From November 21st to 28th, you can save 25% on all of Bioptimizer's products. No restrictions and no limits. This is their biggest sale of the year, and it won't happen again until 2023, which means right now is the best time to stock up on Magnesium Breakthrough, P3OM Probiotics, Masszymes, and more. Just go to www.bioptimizers.com slash podcast 10 and enter podcast 10 for 25% off any order during 2022 Black Friday, November 21st through 28th. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park 